podcast one production. G'day, I'm Chris Russell and welcome to Agriminders. Despite this optimism that's been exemplified in our last interview with Anika, which we all certainly would hope is well-founded, the jury of public opinion is somewhat divided on the likely success of the attempts by our political leaders to reverse changes in temperature we're currently seeing globally. So what's our plan B? If the worst predictions of long-term temperature rises and all those associated effects on food production are in fact inevitable, are we, and if so, how are we, going to adapt to a very different world in terms of agricultural food production? In 1988, the United Nations formed a panel to consider how fit we need to be and what would define that fitness for the next millennia in terms of climate. This panel was termed the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. And in 2007, this panel was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize, no less, in part for their work in this area. And I must say, I'm very excited this morning to be speaking to a joint Nobel laureate, Professor Mark Howden, the first one we've had on Agriminders. Mark is going to bring us up to speed on the Plan B options if we're not successful in reversing the rate of climate change and how these options rank alongside the Plan A carbon reduction commitments of the Paris Accord and all those follow-up conferences. Welcome to Agriminders, Mark. Good morning, Chris. Mark, despite everybody's best endeavours, we've spent a lot of time and money on Plan A which is trying to reduce carbon emissions and so on. But for me, plan B is the, is the safety net. This is where we're going to adapt to uh, maybe what might end up being inevitable climate change because we are impossible to keep the uh, rise in temperature below two degrees. Now, I noticed that the UK have come up with a plan of how they're going to allow their people to adapt medically, environmentally and so on. But Australia, we still seem to be not doing that. Why, why are we so slow to have a plan B? <laughs> Uh, good question, Chris. I actually think we need a, both a plan A and a plan B. And the reason is that we, we do need to continue efforts to uh, reduce our greenhouse gas emissions, and that's to prevent uh, extensive future uh, climate change. But at the same time, uh, climate is already changing. We're already up one degree above the pre-industrial baseline. Uh, we need to adapt to that. Um, plus, we need to adapt to the future changes which are coming down the line. And whether they're you know, one and a half or two degrees or four degrees, um, we're still going to have to adapt to those. Now, the question as to why we haven't really taken adaptation on board, in a sense, relates to the broader politics of climate change in Australia, I think. And so what we're seeing is because there's a, a reticence to acknowledge climate change, because that would then mean there's a logical case for significant action to reduce our greenhouse gas emissions. So in the absence of that acknowledgement, it makes very little sense to adapt to something that you're actually denying is going to happen. So I think we, in a sense, we need a bit of a, a change in the framing of climate change to acknowledge that it's happening, acknowledge that it's human-induced, acknowledge that we have a role to play in terms of both those greenhouse gas emissions and in reduction of those greenhouse gas emissions, and acknowledge that we need to adapt to the changes that are already happening. But if we spend a lot of time, you know, finding who to blame, 
I wonder if that doesn't deflect us from making the changes we need, particularly in agriculture, you know, water harvesting, uh, moving farmers to where the new climate's going to be. Uh, because in the Fed Income Department, you know, we're still at almost identical uh, fuel mix for power production in the world as we were in 1998, in 2018. So, you know, it's not looking good that we're going to. And I, to be honest, I don't, I'm not so fussed about why we've got the problem. I'm more fussed about how this is going to affect food security and how we're going to actually make sure that we can still get our agricultural production in another 20 or 30 years. Look, uh, I actually think it does matter as to why we've got the problem. I mean, you go along to a doctor to get a diagnosis of what your your disease is or what your issue is, because then the treatment is appropriate to the issue. And so I think being very specific about what's going on is in fact part of the solution. But I think there's actually, uh, it's, it's wrong to frame this just as a negative because I actually think that in any change process, there's both winners and losers. And it's a question of how we position ourselves to ensure that we're as much on the winner side of things as possible. And so we've got a lot of smart people in Australian agriculture. We've got extremely smart and capable farmers. We've got you know great research activities and we've got often got uh, state agencies who are, are really competent and supportive and we've got a trade environment which is actually supportive of innovation and uh, and making sure that we you know get rewards for that so i actually think that we can take a step forward uh, with a view that this is a positive step and and that's a change in mindset so rather than seeing this as a negative let's start framing it as something that we can take advantage of Yeah, you're probably less cynical about our politicians than I am. But looking at what England's done, I mean, they've made a lot of plans about their national health scheme, which is like our Medicare, um, in adapting to more people having heat-affected illnesses and so on. They're also looking at the style of farming, the plant breeding and so on. In Australia here, you know, water harvesting seems to be the big issue. We've heard in earlier episodes how we only harvest 5% of our available water. Um, and that's the lowest percentage of surface water harvesting in the world, and yet we're the driest continent. Are there things that we need to be doing in that area for what may end up being inevitable climate change, Mark? We're a, an incredibly climate-affected continent. Um, so so if we go back to the Dorothea McKellar uh, poem from uh, last century, um, you know, we're a, a land of droughts and flooding rains. And, and so in a way that characterises Australia and and given that we are a heavily climate-affected country, uh, we need to put in place all of those mechanisms to, to deal with that. You can't just wish away a drought, um, but there are ways of managing um, the risks of that drought, both before the drought, during the drought and after the drought. And it's about you know really putting in place um, the, the good processes that actually encourage people um, to go down those pathways. So we, we can... Uh, do the same sorts of things as the UK is doing with with really good um, plans which take climate change into account. Uh, We aren't necessarily doing that in all circumstances. But nevertheless, when we look at the farming community, something like around about 85 to 90 percent, depending on you know, the the activity they're involved in, 85 to 90% of farmers are actually doing what you'd think of as good climate adaptation activities. And so even though there may be a lot of scepticism within the farming community about climate change, what they're actually doing uh, often fits into good practice in terms of climate adaptation. So, so I don't think we're as far behind the eight ball as some people would make out. 
So, Mark, if you were made Prime Minister tomorrow, and that actually sounds like quite a good idea to me, but what would be your top five priorities for in terms of adaptation to, as a plan B um, to what we're going to see happening in our climate? Because your research, you've got a pretty good clue about where we're going. Um, what would your top five things be to do? I think we should reinstigate an effective national drought policy. So we used to have one, which is actually a world-leading policy, uh, which which framed the roles of both um, individuals and governments uh, and so that there was a degree of certainty about what the different roles were and what the support mechanisms were. I'd, I'd actually start to have um, a sensible conversation about what's changing and how people can manage that and so, in a sense, depoliticise uh, the conversation and so um, take out those factors which may be restraining um, activity in some circumstances. I'd boost R&D, uh, so that wouldn't be R&D done by scientists for scientists, that would be R&D done in partnership, um, that's research and development done in partnership with the stakeholders, with the farmers, with agribusiness, etc. I'd also start to think about how we can effectively put a price on carbon uh, that actually uh, reflects the real impacts of our greenhouse gas emissions, and that's not just... Um, carbon dioxide but also methane and nitrous oxide which are significant in our farming systems and so those are a few of the things that I'd, I'd think about doing up front. Mark, we started this series looking at Megan Clark's comments. Um, we will eat more food in the next 50 years than the history of humanity, and we currently only had to produce 30% of that. Now, that's unrelated to climate change. That's just assuming we carry on with the current agricultural uh, status and, and production methods that we have or expecting to have. But, you know, if you put actually throw the effects we might have from a drier continent or indeed just a continent of more extremes, what do you see the implications are if, climate, if plan A and plan B actually don't work? If we don't have a plan B that works and if we're not successful with plan A? So the, the challenges in front of us are, are really significant. As you flag, we've got to produce a huge amount more food for a growing population and a growing consumption per person. We do that in the face of climate change, which in many cases, but not all, um, is going to be problematic in terms of uh, you know, adding risk to existing farming systems. We're doing that on the top of a, uh, an already often degraded resource base. So our soils are degraded um, in various ways. The nutrients are down, the carbon's down, often salinisation issues in parts of the world, including Australia. And we're looking at a, an extremely stressed water resource system in many parts of the world. So um, what water resources are there are already fully allocated and quite contested, um, not just within countries but across country borders. So so our, the sort of picture we have in terms of, of food security looking out in the future is actually pretty challenging. So we need to bring all of our smarts together um, to work together so that we can actually resolve these things. I actually think we can, but it is going to be a really significant challenge. So if we look at, at increased productivity at the moment, so across the globe we're improving crop growth and, and 
farm productivity by around about 1.5% a year, which is pretty astounding because we do that year on year on year. Uh, And in some places, there's a lot more room to move, like in Africa and parts of Asia. In some places, there's very little room to move because we're already pretty much at potential production. So the focus of of our efforts needs to be geographically differentiated uh, and we also need to um, be looking at efficiencies of our systems. So that's the first port of call is in what, what extra efficiencies can we get out of our farming systems to reduce loss, to reduce risk, to Im- improve uh, productivity, to improve transmission of, uh, of value across the value chain. And, and if we do those things, I actually think we can um, sort of meet those different demands, but but it is going to be a challenge, and I, and I really don't think people have started to come to grips with the degree of challenge that it's going to be. I, I agree with you. In fact, I called this episode "Survival of the Fittest," which refers to the Darwinian theory that says that species only survive if they're able to adapt to fitness as applied to the environment of the day. And in this case, we, we've got a two-pronged attack. Yes, we're trying to survive. But the other way, we're also trying to change the definition of fitness by actually changing the climate, which seems like potentially a fool's errand in some ways. But well, I was, at the beginning of this episode, we spoke to Anika Molesworth. Now, Anika was Young Farmer of the Year in 2015. She has her own family property way out in the back of New South Wales. She was supremely optimistic that the world would respond and understand this and actually we would uh, be able to solve this problem. Are you as optimistic as her? Uh, look, uh, I, I know Anika well, and, uh, and and she's absolutely fantastic uh, young person, and, and deserves the accolades that she's getting. I am, however, slightly less optimistic than Anika, and this is because for a range of things, um, we we actually are reducing the research and development that we're putting into our food systems and agriculture. We're, we're not actually matching our research and development with the challenges that are ahead of us. We're actually going the other way. As I mentioned before, we've got a whole series of compounding issues like soil degradation and others, um, which again are not getting a lot of policy attention. Rather than being able to come to grips with big long-term risks like climate change, uh, we seem to, in many cases, be avoiding recognising those risks and not taking the steps that are needed now to solve those future problems. Nor are we actually starting to... um, we're continuing to address in a constructive way some of the underlying drivers, such as population growth. So the investment in uh, family planning in developing countries has actually gone down rather than going up. And so we, we have you know, risk on risk on risk, which tends to be mounting. And so, so even though uh, we've got extremely innovative farmers and innovative uh, value chains uh, around that, uh, we do have to recognise that there's all of those different risks. And sitting in amongst them, is the requirement to reduce our greenhouse gas emissions. And in our agriculture, we don't have a lot of silver bullet solutions like solar photovoltaics or, or wind turbines, which can relatively simply and very cost-effectively replace existing coal-fired power stations. Um, we don't have those options in agriculture. And, and so we're, we're not in a position where we can just say, yeah, we can reduce our emissions by 30% or 50%. It's going to be pretty tough. It's going to be a hard grind reducing those emissions given our current technologies, given our current options. And we're not investing the research and development um, that's needed to actually give us new options. So Sir David Attenborough said at, a re- at the recent um, conference, famously sitting from the seat of the people, that if we don't get this right, this could be the end of humankind as we know it, if I paraphrase. Is he right? 
Uh, look, I, I'm, I'm perhaps not quite so upfront in terms of the risk to humankind. Um, as a species, I think we'll, we'll survive climate change. But I do think it is a really significant challenge. I do think this will impact on the lives and livelihoods of millions, perhaps hundreds of millions of people. It is a potentially a, an extinction issue for other species, um, apart from humans, the ones that aren't as adaptable, that don't have the resources to, to throw at um, survival that we do. And that's a real issue. Uh, and I think it will impact on the ecosystem services that we get from our natural systems. Um, and, and those are actually much, much more valuable than most people think. So I don't see this quite in the same way as David Attenborough as, a, as an existential crisis for humankind, for our species. But I do still think it is a really significant issue. And that's why I work on it. It's because it's such a significant issue. Professor Mark Howden, thank you so much for being our agri-minder today and bringing us the benefit of your many years of scholarship. A pleasure, Chris. There's no doubt in most people's minds that climate change is a reality and it's something that we're going to see more of. The question is, are we going to be able to change back the climate? Or do we need to just get used to it and come up with a way of adapting to that in a Darwinian sense? Survival of the fittest is the catch cry of evolutionary development of this planet through millions of years of development. Are we going to now decide that we're going to actually change the climate instead of becoming more fit to adapt to it? Are we likely to be successful to that? We've heard the background of where we've been and where we might be going. We've heard the optimism of youth who are absolutely convinced that we'll use our intelligence to achieve that. And then we've heard of the plan B, the pragmatic reality that if we don't make it, we need to do something about being able to adapt more successfully. I hope in this episode, you will now have been able to form a more considered opinion about where we have been, where we are likely to go, and I hope you've been infected by the optimism of our next generation. Agriminders are the people who are there to guide us. We're all there to listen to them and to come up with what we consider to be the best solution for our future. Let's not make the Anthropocene age the shortest age that we've ever known in geological history. Join us again on Agriminders. Special thanks to the AgriMinds Think Tank Group. AgriMinders was presented by me, Chris Russell, and created in collaboration with Podcast One Australia. Executive producer extraordinaire was Jenny Goggin. Sound production by Darcy Thompson. For more episodes, go to podcastone.com.au, download the Podcast One app, or search AgriMinders on Apple Podcasts.